Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Avital Leibovich is director of AJC Jerusalem. She's with us now to fill us in on the latest round of violence between Israel and Gaza. Avital, thank you for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Now, this past weekend, over 650 rockets were launched from Gaza into southern Israel. What set off this barrage, which Israel retaliated to with more than 300 strikes inside Gaza? Well, uh, you know, if you ask uh, the boots inside Gaza, like Hamas and Islamic Jihad, they would say that Israel has not fulfilled its side of the bargain from the last round of fire, mainly referring to the Qatari money. Now, Israel is only the messenger in this case, and the Qatari money, which was not transferred into Gaza, had really nothing to do with Israel. So I would say um, it was just a good timing for Hamas to target Israel, to put pressure on Israel in order to, through Israel, get the Qataris to pass the money. I'm going to ask something that's maybe a bit of a dumb question. I hope you'll forgive me. But we here in America, you know, we we don't experience the rocket barrages in the same way because we're not there. Sometimes headlines can blur into one another. So here's the question. Is 650, is that is that a lot of rockets? So the, the actual number in 48 hours is 690 rockets. As a result of this amount of rockets, 21 houses in Israel were destroyed, four Israelis were killed, and approximately 160 Israelis were wounded. So you can imagine that this is quite a large number for 48 hours. If you just divide 690 to 48 hours, you can understand that this is something which is quite intense. Additionally, we had 240 Iron Dome interceptions. So the uh, Iron Dome batteries were also on high alert, working in uh, high capacity all over the country. But more than anything, I would say it's the disruption of life. And putting on hold something like one million Israelis' lives, uh, not sending kids to school, roads are being closed, the train and other public transportation means are not working, uh, businesses were closed. And to top it with a sense of lack of security, this is, of course, something very severe from an Israeli perspective. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And, and it's it's deeply tragic to think about the loss of life. And, and also, I mean, inspiring is the only word that's coming to mind to think about how many lives are saved by Israel's investment in Iron Dome. When you think about those rockets that were intercepted, which are the ones, assuming Iron Dome is doing its job right, the ones that were headed for the most populated areas, it's really a beautiful thing to think about how many people are are able to go on with their lives with interruptions, of course, which are damaging from a psychological perspective, but to keep living. Right. And those four Israelis that were killed, actually, it's also interesting because these are really a microcosmos of the Israeli population. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an ultra-Orthodox 21-year-old by the name of Pinchas uh, Perzumen, and uh, he was a Hasidic, a uh, Gur Hasidic. There was uh, 
ה-67-year-old, הקיבוצניק by the name of משה פדר. There was a Bedouin guy who was killed as well, Ziyad el-Hamamda. And there was a 58-year-old Iraqi guy by the name of Moshe Agadi. So basically, those four killed, you know, they symbolize in a way the microcosmos of the Israeli uh, society. And these are actually the last four names that uh, are commemorated today. Today we are marking Memorial Day here in Israel, and these are the last years for names of victims, of terror victims, which is really quite tragic. I, I saw something really beautiful the other day that President Rivlin went to visit the family of the Bedouin man who was killed. And the, the father said to him, you know, it, it means so much that you're here. And President Rivlin replied to this Arab Israeli and said, well, why wouldn't I be here? Your son was Israeli after all, which is, is really touching. I have chills even just thinking about it now. Where, of course. Where are we now? What's the situation on the ground today? So the situation on the ground today, I would say, is quiet. All limitations on the population have been lifted, and uh, Israelis living uh, within the 40-kilometer perimeter from Gaza are able to go back to their own lives. But I'm not sure that we will not see another round of an escalation in just a few weeks' time. And I can tell you, I can share with you, that just, uh, I think, uh, an hour and a half ago, there was a joint press conference by the representatives of the different terror groups in Gaza. And I want to share with you one quote, which they just said, just an hour and a half ago. What they said was, our hand is still on the trigger, and our activists are still on the ground. Uh, Which means that, you know, this is not the final word. Additionally, they are calling thousands of Palestinians to go again and protest on the border of Gaza on Friday. I'm sure you recall the March of Return protest that began March 31st uh, last year. And now they're again provoking towards the same kind of violent protest. So this is something that definitely is taken into consideration. I think there is quite a high probability that we will see another round, uh, maybe even a wide-scale kind of operation in the next couple of weeks. Now, the word Eurovision doesn't mean too much to Americans, but to Europeans, to Israelis, to folks in countries that participate in the Eurovision, it's up there with the Olympics or the World Cup or the Super Bowl, which is something that I suppose doesn't actually mean too much to Europeans. Eurovision, by dint of the fact that the Israeli entry into this European song competition, Netta Barzilai, by dint of the fact that she won last year with her song Toy, um, is going to be hosted in Tel Aviv next week. Has the Gaza flare-up affected the planning for Eurovision at all, or will the show go on? So, fortunately, it hasn't affected the situation, and the delegations of the 42 countries participating in this competition actually arrived to Israel a week ago. So they were here during the flare-up in Gaza. Since Tel Aviv was quiet, they didn't feel anything out of the ordinary. They enjoyed, you know, the great lifestyle Tel Aviv has to offer, And I saw some interviews with the delegations, which they all said they're happy to be here, they're enjoying Israel, it's usually their first time, and so on. I think for Israel, more than a song competition, the Eurovision is a good opportunity to expose Israel 
to 160 million viewers across the world. Of course, there will be something like 20, 30,000 tourists who will come especially for that. But moreover, this is really a good opportunity. I'll share that a former Project Interchange participant, someone who traveled to Israel with AJC um, a few years back as part of our delegation for Rhodes Scholars, reached out to me to let me know that he was going to be traveling from his home in the Bay Area to Israel for Eurovision. I've never heard such palpable excitement from someone. So, um, you know, I'll certainly be checking in with him. And here's hoping that there's an exciting, uninterrupted extravaganza. Uh, Avital, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Sophie. Last week, dozens of young professionals joined us to record a special AJC Passport live show right here in New York City. Now, we're bringing you that very special conversation with Representative Elliot Engel, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Next week, you'll get to listen in on another AJC Passport live show from Atlanta, Georgia. And, of course, it's not too late to join us at the AJC Global Forum in Washington, D.C. from June 2nd through 4th, where we'll be recording a live show with very special guests. To register today, head to AJC.org slash Passport Global Forum. Now, here's my conversation with Representative Elliot Engel. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored tonight to be joined by Congressman Elliot Engel. Representative Engel is one of the country's most prominent Democratic elected officials, especially considering that he's not currently running for office, at least when I checked just before. Not yet. Every two years is enough. (laughs) Representative Engel, now in his 16th term in the House, represents parts of Westchester and the Bronx and is the powerful chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Representative Engel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Now, tonight we're going to talk about anti-Semitism, and we're going to talk about the U.S.'s relationship, but I actually want to start in a different place, perhaps an unexpected place. That place is the border between Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, You told me before that you were there last month in a bipartisan congressional delegation, that you stood on that bridge that we've all seen pictures of, um, the blockaded bridge. Um, And you were there with uh, Democrats and Republicans from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which you chair, including the ranking member, the the senior Republican on the committee, Representative McCall from Texas. Uh, I want to start with the Venezuela issue because I think it's refreshing to see people generally in the same place, even on on opposite sides of the aisle on on an issue uh, in this age of of hyperpartisanship. What did you learn when you were there with Representative McCall? Well, let me first tell you that I've always believed in terms of foreign affairs, for sure, that partisanship should, should stay at the water's edge, and that when members of Congress visit foreign countries, it's good to do it in a bipartisan fashion, and it's good to do it uh, in a way where uh, other countries see unity coming from us rather than fighting or, or, or disunity. So uh, we had heard about the horrific conditions. We had seen uh, the pictures, as I'm sure everyone has here as well on on TV uh, with foodstuffs coming in and people starving and it was just terrible so we wanted to see for ourselves how bad it was and believe me it was bad there were so many children and so many people thousands and thousands and thousands of people Uh, there were some churches uh, giving out rice and beans and that was basically all what people were uh, were eating and it's such a tragedy when you think that um, Venezuela 
should be the richest country in, uh, in South America and Latin America because they have tremendous oil reserves. And yet right now, they're the biggest basket case in South America. It's a, a terrible situation. Uh, I don't know if it's going to get uh, worse before it gets better. But you know, there was a, a coup the other day, or an attempted coup, which failed. And I don't know what that means for the Venezuelan people. Uh, we know that, uh, that Russia and Cuba and possibly the Chinese, but certainly Russia uh, is involved there with some of its uh, military people trying to uh, cause, uh, cause trouble. We've got our hands full there, but uh, we really need to, to be generous because it's literally a matter of life and death. And when you see people who are just so, uh, it's so sad to watch them, it, it angers me when I hear the president uh, talk about refugees as if they're somehow uh, garbage or lesser people or bad people. Um, my uh, grandparents uh, came to this country as Jewish refugees 110 years ago, uh, came to New York. I mean, that's why I'm in New York. That's why I represent New York. Um, they were fleeing uh, all kinds of uh, terrible things, pogroms in Eastern Europe, and they came to the United States, and the people trying to come today, in my opinion, are coming for the same reason. They, they want a better life, and they fear for their lives. And this demonizing of people or somehow saying that they're all terrible, uh, they're all illegal. Well, they're illegal because we won't make them legal. But, but we really need to be sensitive to it. And that wasn't uh, all. We, we went to the border of Texas and Mexico and saw the same thing in El Paso, Texas. Uh, thousands of people in facilities that really shouldn't really house more than a couple of hundred. And um, again, uh, Central American countries, people are, are, are coming to this country and um, I think we should be welcoming. Now, I do understand that you just can't open the borders and let everybody come in without checking or anything. But certainly, while you're checking, and people do, by law, have the right to have a hearing, uh, we ought to treat these people humanely. They're not garbage. They're human beings just like us. And frankly, I've been appalled by the president's attitude and statements about immigration. Well, you, you, you mentioned, you mentioned the, the, the president and, and his uh, statements on, on immigration. Uh, it, in, in many ways, though, when it comes to the Venezuela issue, there is a sense of bipartisanship from the White House to Capitol Hill and, and across the aisle in, in, in Congress. Um, is, is, that, is that right or is that an illusion? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, it is um, true on the Foreign Affairs Committee to mm -hmm. some extent mm -hmm. because on the Foreign Affairs Committee, I, I was the ranking member for six years before I became chairman. And you know how that works. Each, each uh, political party picks its leaders in each of the committees in the elections held, and the majority committee's leaders become chairs, and the minority committee's leaders become ranking members. So we were the minority for the past six years with Ed Royce as the chairman from California. And he and I uh, tried to work very closely in a bipartisan basis, and we're doing it now that I'm the chairman. Uh, with Michael McCall from Texas, who is the Republican. It doesn't mean we agree on everything, and it doesn't mean we, we see eye to eye on everything. But uh, for instance, when the president announced that he was going to cut aid uh, to Central America, we were actually in El Salvador uh, at the time, and we were, we were dumbfounded. We, we, we were having a program showed to us uh, by the FBI, um, funded uh, by the State Department, to get at these terrible gangs, the MS-13, that are, that are uh, destroying uh, lives in El Salvador, uh, and uh, also coming to the United States and doing it, the president announces that he's going to uh, 
cut the aid. So what does that mean? It means the programs that were being run so that young people could have a future uh, learning uh, various computer skills and how to make different things. If we cut the, um, the aid, it'd be, my mother used to say, cutting off your nose to spite your face. Uh, because we won't have them uh, have leading productive lives. They'll, they'll go into crime, and then it'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's how wrong I believe the president has been with his immigration policies. And it's, it's in all of our interest to, to address this in, in, in a sensible way. Now, if bipartisanship is important on the House Foreign Affairs Committee when it comes to Venezuela, uh, we at AJC would say it's that much more important when it comes uh, to, to Israel. And, and that has been... Uh, the norm throughout uh, much of, of the history of the U.S. as a relationship. My, my boss likes to say that if there was a, a signature accomplishment of the American Jewish community uh, in the second half of the 20th century, um, it was keeping uh, the America, um, the U.S.-Israel relationship bipartisan. Uh, but now we see some um, on, on the far left uh, who don't value that relationship, and some on the far right who seem to value it more as a political tool um, than for its own worth. Um, where, where are we headed? Well, one of the things that's very good is that uh, support for Israel in the Congress is strong, and it is bipartisan, and we should never allow Israel to become a political football or a political issue. Um, it may be good for one party to say, well, we're better on Israel than, this, than the other party, but it's not good for Israel. Israel has to have a relationship with both parties, so therefore, no matter who is in control of the White House or of Congress, Israel has a good relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've tried to do. I've never taken a position the other way around. I've never taken a position for uh, elected elections in Israel because I vote in the United States, mm -hmm. and that's where I take my positions. And so I think it's very important that people who support Israel, that support Israel unequivocally. It doesn't mean we agree with everything the government does. I don't agree with everything my government does. I don't agree with everything my wife does. Um, <laughs> but she agrees with everything I do, though. Right. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, so so uh, it's not good to make Israel a political football. We want to make it so that everyone supports Israel. And the, and the support for Israel is bipartisan and is strong. There are a handful of people that aren't my cup of tea, and you know, but, but we have to uh, transcend that, and we will, and we have been. Uh, you, Israel is the number one U.S. aid recipient, uh, gets more f money from the United States than any other country. There's all kinds of, uh, of support for Israel. So I am, I am very pleased with it, and I want to continue it, and I don't want Israel used as a political football by the ultra-left or the ultra-right. Well, so, so then let me ask you this, because the people in this room are advocates. And you are someone who's advocated, too, every day. Um, and, and as advocates who want to maintain bipartisanship in the U.S. as a relationship, and, and to take it uh, beyond Israel as well, who want to encourage Congress to take uh, valuable steps to fight anti-Semitism um, and, and work on any number of issues that are, that are uh, dearly important to us, what are some what are some tips that you would offer you know young global Jewish advocates uh, who who want to be who want to be effective um, in, uh, in in advocating to members of Congress or, or other elected officials? Well, I would say just talk from the heart and and let people understand that um, the the fights that are Israel's fights, <clears throat> excuse me, are also America's fights. Um, it's not a one-way relationship between the two countries where Israel takes and the United States gives. Yes, the United States gives a lot of aid to Israel, 
But Israel exchanges all kinds of important information, security information, military information. Uh, there's a lot of co collaboration uh, between our two countries. And that's why the relationship is so important. I, 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 like, to use, I, I like to use a phrase where I say, I, I want to make sure that the U.S.-Israel relationship is so strong that it doesn't even matter who's president or who's prime minister at any given time. Because presidents come and go, and prime ministers come and go, and you know, members of the Knesset come and go, and even members of Congress come and go. Although I don't want to go so quickly. <laughs> but the U.S.-Israel relationship is what has to be strong. And I think that those of us that, that love Israel and love the United States and want to see a, a, a strong relationship, uh, we're definitely the, the majority in Congress, certainly the majority in each of the two parties. And I don't want Israel to be a political football. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let me let me pivot now to um, to talk about another issue that's that's of, of dire importance to the people in, in this room, which is uh, combating anti-Semitism. Um, you know, and I, I include you, by the way, among the people in this room because I know how important it is uh, to you. When we here at AJC talk about anti-Semitism, we talk about it as a three-headed monster, right? The three sources of anti-Semitism are anti-Semitism from the far left from the far right and from certain radical segments of the Muslim community. Um, and we take a lot of flack for that, frankly, for talking about all three sources. But look, maybe it's the fact that we're a global organization with an office in Paris. Uh, you can't ignore uh, jihadist uh, anti-Semitism when uh, more than a dozen Jews have been killed by, by, um, by Islamists in, in, in uh, recent years in, in France. Maybe it's the fact that we work in, in the UK for example, that makes us so aware of far-left uh, anti-Semitism. But nevertheless, people tell us all the time that anti-Semitism is, is something that is it's a white supremacist threat. It's not, it's not a, a, a diverse um, a threat that comes to us from diverse places. Where, where do you stand on this? Is, is anti-Semitism one more manifestation of white supremacy that needs to be combated because all white supremacy needs to be combated? Or is it something separate and apart? Well, I, I think that you've got it just, just right. Anti-Semitism does come from the ultra-left, no doubt about it, and does come from the ultra-right, and does come from radical, uh, some, some radical Muslims. And I think that we have to uh, counter anti-Semitism wherever it rears its ugly head. I mean, today is Yom HaShoah, uh, the Holocaust Remembrance Day. And um, that was the ultimate in, in, in genocide. And um, it's something uh, only a short years later, 75 years later, we're seeing this horrific rise of anti-Semitism, even in New York City of all places. I mean, you, where would you think uh, that Jewish culture would be more in the United States than any place else than New York City? And yet uh, we, we've seen in, in my own district uh, last week, there was a, a mall in Yonkers, uh, which was, uh, had a swastika drawn on it. It only takes one jerk. Yeah. Uh, to, to do these things. And I remember when I was a little kid, uh, some grown-ups uh, said, I don't think it can't happen here, meaning the Holocaust. And I used to think, well, that's really an exaggeration, and it really couldn't happen here. And while I don't think the, the, the Holocaust, uh, like we saw in, in Germany uh, during the 40s, uh, would happen here, um, who would have ever thought that all this, these, the, the rise in anti-Semitic uh, incidents uh, would happen here either? It's just one after another, after another, after another. So we have our work cut out for us, and um, you know, it's really a, really a scary thing. I mean, 
I don't blame the president for it because he's one he's one man and he can but he, but he can say the right things. You know, you don't say there are good and bad people on both sides when when the the uh, the, the right wing uh, skinheads are, are chanting Jews will not replace us. Um, it doesn't mean I absolve it from the left. I thought the uh, that cartoon in the New York Times was an absolute disgrace, and I, I tweeted it out. I, I just was so angry. It, it looked like something coming out of the Der Sturme uh, magazine the Nazis used to yeah. put out with the Jewish stereotypes and the nasty things. Um, so we have our work. We have our work cut out, and it, and it is I, it is ironic that um, some of the people on the right, who um, you know seem to love Israel, they seem to hate Jews at the same time. So try to figure that one out. But, it, but it's no excuse uh, for people on the far left who are doing these horrific things, too. And it's not that Israel can't be criticized. You know, the United States can be criticized. Everybody can be criticized. It's just that I know when things are anti-Semitic. I, 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 being Jewish, I have a, I have a feeling when, when it's you know, criticism of Israel or the government or whatever, if it's done in a certain way, that's, I think, fair game. Uh, but uh, when it starts to take other... Uh, forms. Um, we all know it when we see it. Well, so let me ask you this. Um, you're a co-chair of the Congressional Bipartisan Task Force to Combat Anti-Semitism. I think now there are about 140 members uh, of Congress who are a part of that, that task force. Uh, by the way, I'll, I'll just add for, for our listeners, AJC is, uh, is, is working to get 435 members of Congress to be um, to be members of that of that task force, and, and you can head to ajc.org/taskforce uh, to fill out a form and, and send a letter to your congressman to ask them to join. Um, what is Congress's role in fighting anti-Semitism? I think I think that Congress has has a role uh, in in informing the constituents in in trying to influence public opinion, in trying to, to say what we believe and what we think is right and what uh, direction the country should go in. And I think that's true of, of, uh, of all the members of Congress. We have, a, we have a responsibility. It's not just someone talking on the street and saying whatever they want to say. Um, as, a, as an elected official, particularly a federal election, elected official, what, what, what you say ha you know, resonates all over. So I think there is an absolute responsibility. Um, Many of us form this caucus because we know that, uh, you know, anti-Semitism is always just beneath the surface. Of course, it's gotten worse, but uh, there's a need to have it. You know, I'll tell you something very interesting. In uh, in the 2000 uh, race for the presidency, when when Al Gore was the Democratic nominee for uh, for president, and Joe Lieberman was the Democratic nominee for vice president, I asked Joe Lieberman at the end of the campaign how many incidents of anti-Semitism since he was the first Jewish person running in a national election, did he encounter throughout the entire campaign? And he told me zero. Hmm. Wow. Now, who would, have, who would think that that would still be the case today? So, you know, we have, a, we have our role. We have things to do. And as members of Congress, people will listen. And that's why I think it's important. So some of us got together and formed this task force on anti-Semitism, you know, years before we had the upswing in anti-Semitism. Uh, I'm sorry that we you know, we're prophetic about it. But it's an important thing to do. It's an important thing to, to have uh, all members of Congress involved with it. And um, I, I think most members of Congress will, will, will embrace it. Let me, um, you, you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned that we shouldn't confuse anti-Semitism 
with criticism of Israel. Um, and, and you've actually been, been living that out. Last month, uh, you put out a statement uh, along with uh, uh, Representative Nita Lowy, uh, Ted Deutsch, and Brad Schneider uh, from New York, Florida, and Illinois, respectively, um, criticizing um, or, or perhaps expressing your concern about um, comments that Prime Minister Netanyahu made about uh, annexation of the West Bank in whole or in part uh, as part of his campaign, uh, successful campaign to be reelected prime minister. Um, we at AJC agree with, with the position that, that you put out there, uh, but I'm sure you took some heat for writing it, especially since people might, might reasonably say, well, campaign promises don't always get fulfilled. There's, there's no reason to think necessarily is going through with this. Why did you feel that it was important to speak out? Well, and I want to tell you, it was the first time ever. I said before that I've never taken a position uh, of support for any candidate in Israel, because I've never done that, and I still haven't done that. I've never taken a position on any issue uh, involving Israel until, until this one. And, and this was uh, after the election that you put out the statement? Yes, yes. Because, well, first of all, I, I feel very strongly about a two-state solution. Um, I don't believe that there will be peace uh, unless there's a two-state solution. I don't believe, and I, and I worry about one state where Jews become a minority uh, in, in the Jewish homeland. Um, and I think that's a very dangerous thing. Now, I always think that I'm living here in the United States, so I don't really have a right to tell people who are living in Israel on the, on the front line, living in with terror day in and day out, what to do. And I've always used that as the reason why I wouldn't take position. But I just thought I'm known as a, one of the strongest supporters of Israel in the Congress. I'm known in Israel. And I just thought it was important. I didn't do it before the election because I didn't want to get involved with the election. But I thought uh, uh, somehow outside, after it was all done, uh, I wanted it to be clear that I still felt that the uh, two-state solution was the only chance we had for a viable uh, peace in, between Israel and the, and the uh, Palestinians. Now, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm optimistic is that many of the Sunni Arab countries that never had diplomatic relations with Israel are talking with Israel behind the scenes at the highest levels. And so they understand, you know, when they look around and they think who their arch enemy is, they no longer think it's Israel, that they realize that it's Iran. And Iran is the one, it's the, it's the fight again in the, in the Muslim world. But they realize it's Iran. When I have uh, people from the, uh, from the gov government of, of the Sunni Arab countries come and talk with me, and from Israel come and talk with me, they're saying the same thing. They, they think Iran is the biggest danger in the region. I agree. They think Iran's the biggest troublemaker. I agree. And so I'm hoping that at some point we can uh, put away the hatreds of yesteryear and try to uh, forge ahead uh, with Israel having um, alliances or at least working relationships or at least no war uh, with countries around them. I mean, you now have Egypt and Jordan doing all kinds of things with Israel. Um, why not? Why not the other countries? So, uh, I, I think that's something I'm going to be uh, continuing to uh, to push forward because I think it's really important for the future. Last year, when you were the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, um, the committee unanimously supported an anti-BDS uh, legislation. Um, 
earlier this year, the Senate passed a different anti-BDS bill. Um, are you in favor of, of that bill? And, and do you expect uh, that it'll similarly sail through uh, your committee this time around? Well, I'm, I'm uh, uh, for any of the bills. I like, I like my bill the best um, <laughs> because I want a bill that will attract the most support to show that it's, there's overwhelming support uh, against BDS. And that's what we want to, uh, want to work for. And now, we can get a real ultra, ultra, ultra tough bill and maybe some people will drop off and not want to sign it. Uh, I would rather have a very tough bill and have lots of people sign it than a very, very, very tough bill and have half the people say, well, maybe it goes too far. Yeah. So I think, and we have to do it for the good reasons, for the right reasons, to support Israel. Not because as Democrats or as Republicans, we think it's going to benefit our party in America. Uh, we want to benefit Israel. So that's why I want the broadest consensus. I want to get as much as I, the people I can have. Some people have made a, a big a deal over what they see as uh, an impediment to free speech in the BDS bill. I disagree with that. I think that uh, people ha can say what they want. Uh, it, it, it doesn't uh, affect uh, free speech. Uh, I think that BDS is an absolute uh, disgrace. Um, it, it comes uh, out of the United Nations never treating Israel properly all these years. And um, I think that we have to, uh, to combat it. And I think that we are, we're going to continue to do it, and we, and we will. So I'm hoping that we can pass a bill. I always like the House version better than the Senate version. And, you know, <laughs> what also happens is you, you now have the Senate controlled by the Republicans and the House by the Democrats. So part of that goes into it. You know, it's not, it's not only the substance of what's in the bill. There's politics involved with it as well. I have a bill that's a Syrian uh, bill called the Caesar Syria Bill. Uh, we've passed it several times in the House. They've passed it in the Senate. It's my bill, and you can't get the two to line up because someone always throws something extraneous into it. Or in the Senate, there's one person who can block it, and you want to just scream. So it's hard enough to do it. So the way to write bills uh, is to do it as broadly as you can to get the most consensus and to show that there's you know very uh, quick uh, support. And uh, that's what we've always done vis-a-vis -vis Israel. And we've also done things uh, in bipartisan fashion for Israel, like the last Gaza war, when uh, uh, Israel needed some, some more of the rockets to prevent the missiles from coming in. And we passed it uh, right in the middle of that. I led the floor debate on it. And only eight people in Congress out of 435 voted no. So that's pretty darn good. Indeed it is. Ladies and gentlemen, another round of applause, please. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Remembering. Good for the Jews? We're sitting here today at the tail end of Yom HaShoah, and I'm struck by all of the remembering going on. Even as we justifiably worry about rising anti-Semitism, it's gratifying to see Twitter fill up with remembrances from good people across the country. And then there was a different type of Holocaust story. And that's the story of Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. This week, Bennett launched what seems to be a long shot bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. This is not an endorsement. AJC doesn't endorse or oppose candidates. But long shot or not, successful or not, Bennett is, as best I can tell, the first child of a Holocaust survivor to run for president. And that is a beautiful thing. And its own type of remembering. 
When Bennett's grandparents were smuggling his mother out of the Warsaw Ghetto, do you think they could have imagined that their grandson could one day be the heir to the faraway Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Or when his mother blessedly reunited with her parents, was leading the remnants of her family in New York because she, a 12-year-old, was the only one who could speak English. Do you think she thought her son would someday feel so at home in this country that he would believe he had a chance to be president? In the next few years, the worldwide Jewish population will, God willing, finally equal what it was in 1939. In many ways, the Jewish people didn't stop surviving the Holocaust in the 1940s. We've been surviving it every day that we go on existing and succeeding in the world. In that respect, and whatever you may think of Michael Bennett's politics, this is a very special moment, one that certainly is good for the Jews. Thank you. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.